0: Recovery Machine Episode Five, where we interview Dr. Carmel Hopkins, and I guess Corey, you're going to do most of the interviewing, and what I'm going to do is kind of sit back and uh, ask questions as I uh, as I come across them, and uh, we'll kind of break into a conversation um, as we go. Yeah, that's right. Sound good, everyone sounds, sounds great. hey Carmel.
1: Uh-huh. Hi, thank you for having me.
2: Thanks for being here with us. So we'll start off with a couple of, a couple of easy ones for you and, um, <laughs> yeah, we'll just kind of keep going. So tell us your professional title to the listeners.
1: Um, I'm a general dentist. I've been, um, practicing since 2008. I graduated from Loma Linda university in California. Um, kind of bounced around all over the place at the beginning, moved down to Washington state, worked there for a couple of years, worked in Alberta for a year, uh, settled in Salmon Arm for the majority of my practice, I would say, and um, had a little blip as we'll get into. And I am now working in Vernon.
2: Cool, cool. And what made you decide to get into dentistry in the first place?
1: Uh, I was thinking about that when we were, um, my husband and I were driving home today, and um, I was actually, at, you're a nurse, and I was actually um, on the path to uh, do nursing in my undergrad. And my dad was a big influential factor in my decision to change into dentistry as he was a sales rep for a dental company my entire life. I was always kind of around the dental world. I worked at a dental lab when I was in high school and uh, in the summers in college. Um, And so it just kind of felt normal, I guess, to uh, consider dentistry as an option. Uh, A few of my friends in college were also pursuing that path. So yeah, it was kind of like a little bit of peer pressure, a little bit of parent, a lot of parent pressure. And uh, I guess my decision as well.
0: So, you didn't, uh, you didn't dream of being a dentist as a little girl.
1: I, I did not. I actually no. dreamed of being a nurse since I was a little girl, uh, working in health, healthcare for sure. Um, nursing, uh, I, I knew not, I kind of knew from a young age, not medicine, um, but nursing or dentistry would have been one or the other. And had I not got into dentistry, um, you know, it would have been something to think about for sure to change paths into nursing
0: but not pharmacy. I know how you feel about pharmacy, no,
1: not pharmacy. No, never pharmacy. <laughs> pharmacy was never an option. Didn't even know that was an option.
0: <laughs> never heard of a pharmacist before.
1: No. <laughs> <laughs> so
2: so what's your workplace setting like now, Carmel? What, um, what area of dentistry? What is that? What does it look like for you?
1: Um, so like I was in private practice and Although this is still considered, I guess, private practice, I'm working in a nonprofit. So um, I work with uh, a part of the community that is underserved. Um, Oftentimes they don't have any insurance. Um, They're on social assistance. Um, They're homeless. Um, A lot of of addiction. Uh, Just people that just don't have access to dental care. Uh, We provide that at a discounted rate or a subsidized rate by grants that we get, um, often from the government or just donors. Uh, And it really is helpful to those people that really need care. I did not realize, you know, dentists just go into private practice. That's just kind of what they do. And I didn't even realize that, that there was a kind of marginalized group of people that weren't getting treatment. Like I just thought, well, everyone is going to get treated, but there's a huge population of people that they just, they just can't afford it. You know, elderly people that are on, uh, you know, just their pension, government pension like that how, how, how can you get a $300 cleaning when that money needs to go elsewhere? So, uh, I'm really grateful to have found this place. Cause I really was getting burnt out with the Kind of marketing and business side of private practice. And this is much more um, like healthcare based. I feel like I'm really giving back.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So what does a day look like for you? Like how long, how long are your, are your days? And can you kind of walk us through briefly what, what a, a day in the life looks like?
1: Yeah. Um, I work eight to four and I work four days a week and I've been listening diligently to your other podcasts. And uh I really the last one you did um talking about boundaries and setting like healthy boundaries and stuff. Um I'm maxed out at four days. And I often feel anyways I'll get into that in a second, but my um my day-to-day is um just general dentistry, a lot of extractions. Um we do a lot of um large surface fillings, uh people that can't afford crowns that aren't covered by any insurance or that aren't covered by social assistance. Um, You know, we have to kind of think outside the box, do a little bit of different dentistry. Um, Yeah, just kind of basic care, really basic care, urgent care. um, A lot of emergencies that we see, uh, broken teeth. Um, And then if we can't treat them, we have people that are able to kind of like oral surgeons and um, kind of other specialties that are able to help us. So but I would say just kind of like basic dentistry.
0: Can I ask you, Carmel, what the uh, difference between the place that you're working at now, uh, you mentioned that it was uh, it's kind of a different setup and that it's not as focused on uh, maybe the financial side of things with dentistry. Could you compare it to the place you were working at before that way? Is it uh, just a different pace or is it a different expectation?
1: Yeah. Oh, for sure. Like in private practice, I was very, I was an associate. I didn't own my own practice, but even if you did um, dentists that own their own practices or associates always are kind of chasing a number that they want to like a quota or a a goal that they want to reach every day. Um, Sometimes that can be really challenging when um, you're not busy, like, you know, it ebbs and flows. So, um, at this place, there's no incentive really for f- like, there's no really goal for like, I, I kind of have a number in mind that I want to reach. Just, I mean, we need to keep the doors open, but there's not really like a financially driven goal in mind. Um, it's also not like selling crowns. It's not really like cosmetics. So it's not like, how can we make, how can we set ourselves a, a, apart from the other dental offices in town? We don't have to worry about that. Um, so it's a little bit different pace that way. It's it's not as competitive, I would say, um, which I love because that was not my jam. Right. So,
0: okay, thanks.
2: So, Carmel, we wanted to get into a little bit of your substance use history, and and you know we know we know you, Carmel, from from our recovery community um, through the Caduceus groups that we attend. Um, so can you tell us starting with what, what were the substances that became problematic for you and, and when, and then I'll kind of lead that into a few other questions there.
1: Sure. Like I can just kind of explain my story a little bit, if that makes the most sense, um, how I got into these substances. Like, sure, you know, I, I, I would say I drank from the time I was about 14, 15, um, I remember my dad sitting me on the steps one day and saying like, there's alcoholism in the family, just be careful. And, um, but then he'd go buy me, you know, um, like Mike's not so hard lemonade because he figured that was less percentage. So it'd be safer for me. And, and, you know, like looking after me that way, I guess, um, there was alcoholism in my family. I'm not going to go into that really, but, um, definitely, you know, it was there and uh, I kind of grew up around it. So, um, I would say it was like, pretty normal kid growing up. I was a good kid. Uh, I got good grades. I did well in school. I listened to my parents. I didn't really have anything bad happen to me. I didn't I don't have any like memories of trauma. Um, however, I would say I I was raised quite religious in a quite legalistic religion. Um, and I walked away from that when I was 27. And a lot of things kind of changed around that age. I got married, um, and then three years later, I went through a really hard divorce, and I would say that's when I was living in Salmon Arm. We separated. Uh, he took off back to Alberta, and I was left in a town where I knew nobody, and I was working, and I started drinking a lot more just to deal with the loneliness. Um, I know Corey, you talked a lot about loneliness and how that affects, you know, addiction and stuff. And um, I really related to that because it was like extreme, I would say it was extreme loneliness. Like I didn't have, my parents were all over the place in, in the States and sometimes in Northern Saskatchewan, far, far away. Um, My friends were all in Saskatoon. um, So, and I, I didn't know anybody in Salmon Arms. So it was a tough road for A while. And I tried to be the strong, independent woman that could deal with the divorce and and just kind of sweep it under the rug and move on with my life and, and carry on with work. And um, it just the drinking just increased, I guess, organically (laughs) over time, it just increased to a not sustainable level. Um, and then I added in cocaine, um, and that would help. That was more like a party, like bin when I was binge drinking, it would kind of reset me back to zero so I could drink more. Um, and, and I just liked the feeling of being on cocaine. It made me feel like on top of the world. Um, you know, I dabbled in other kind of other drugs, I guess, but none were, um really my substance of choice i would say would be alcohol uh and then it, it, once i got to rehab kind of realizing that cocaine was also was if not a problem was going to be a problem very shortly so uh yeah that's kind of a little bit of my story um before everything kind of happened
2: wow thank you thanks for your honesty there so um You've answered my next question, but I wanted to ask you at what at the, at this point what was the role that your career was having in your in your substance use
1: you know I didn't use i I bragged at the beginning that i you know in in early recovery that I never drank before work, I never drank before work however i mean years it's been years now, and I can say that I definitely probably wasn't like of sound mind working at eight o'clock in the morning after drinking the amount I was drinking till 3 a.m. and then getting up and functioning. Um so um I, I didn't notice that it was a problem at work. Like I just made sure to separate that very clearly from like in my mind in my mind at that time I could say, well, I wasn't drinking at work. I was, I just coped with it. I coped with my problems after work at four o'clock I left and I went to the bar and that was just a routine. It helped de-stress me from the day. Um, But I, I don't know. And I guess I haven't really spent too much time thinking about it. um, Like how much it affected. Well, I can answer. I think it affected my dentistry probably more than I know. Um, I don't work there anymore. So I don't know what people have said behind my back. I don't know. Um, you know, I don't really know those details, but I did, I tried to keep them as separate as I could until the end, you know, waking up in the morning and vomiting before you go to work every day is definitely affect. It's going to affect your job at some point. So.
2: Yeah. And, and did, um, was there an effect from, from cocaine? that you noticed or you can reflect back on with your work?
1: There, yes. I remember a couple of days where I had to call in sick um, because I was, cocaine made me, when I came down from cocaine, I got really like, like a hangover times a thousand, like jittery and like, electric shocks, kind of, it's hard to describe, but like I would twitch and, and, uh, I just didn't, I just felt really terrible, like, like worse than I've ever felt from alcohol. And so there were a couple of days where I definitely had to, you know, call in sick and, you know, oftentimes those were Mondays, like I have the flu on Mondays, <laughs> um, conveniently, but, um, yeah, I would say those were definitely like not regular occurrences. It happened a couple of times or a few times, but yeah.
0: Um, What about, uh, I just wondered because you hadn't uh, talked about it very much before in meetings and stuff. Um, or maybe you did briefly back in the beginning, but, um, when you think about the, you know, kind of the the pace of the dentistry that you were doing then um, versus what you're doing now, would it maybe be fair to say that it was too early in your career to be able to kind of consciously be aware of what your limits are as far as, you know, um, like you said, now you you prefer working four days a week and you like the position that you're in because it's less focused on the financial side of things. And I know for a lot of people, myself included especially early on in my career I didn't think about my limits that way I just yeah I kind of just jumped into the job and did what was required of me
1: yeah hundred percent 100 percent like I we weren't taught any of that in school I mean they don't teach you about your mental looking after your mental health in school uh, and it was just kind of especially when you get out of school um, I'll speak for myself I had crazy amounts of student loans. Um and I still do. And you know, so you're kind of driven to work as much as humanly possible. I had also, you know, I think our parent, well, again, I'll speak for myself, my parents, um, that generation, um, was just always wanting me like you should work more. You should work more days, you should work more hours, you should constantly work, 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 like, you know, grind it out, grind it out. You're young. You've got tons of energy, you've got tons of stamina. And it wasn't until like really recently when I, ke- where I had to sit my parents down and say, you don't understand what it's like to work as a dentist. So don't talk to me about it anymore. Um, you know, you have no idea what it's like to, <laughs> to just, you know, work with emotions like that. Like, it, like You know, I'm like glued to these patients basically um, for an hour and feeling everything that they're feeling their pain and their um, fear and their anxiety, and how to kind of, you know, I have a really good therapist now and she teaches me how to walk away and kind of cut those strings after every patient. But I didn't, I mean, this is all new. Like, this is just in the last couple of years that I've learned how to do this at the beginning. None of that was none of that was taught to me. Nobody told me about that stuff. And, um, you know, I guess I'll kind of stray off. Maybe you guys can bring me back, but you guys were talking about perfectionism the on the last um, podcast and, you know, in dentistry, well, perfectionism is enormous. Like we're talking like, like a quarter of a millimeter perfection. And, and so it's very easy to Um, have those negative self self that negative self-talk come in when you're dealing with such perfection and you know we're also just humans and so sometimes you know doing a root canal I would be doing a root canal and the file would break or something would happen or you know taking out a tooth and the root would break and what are you going to do now and and all that stuff that you know at at that point in my career or pretty early on, I'd be like, well, I'm a, I'm a shitty dentist. Like I broke this file and it happens to every dentist. It's just, it happens. It happens. It's like anything can happen in dentistry. It's just for whatever reason, all that stuff really kind of made me feel lesser than um, like I wasn't like a good dentist. Um, Yeah. Kind of a really bad negative outlook on things. Kind of straight off topic there, sorry. No,
0: that's 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 really good stuff, and it it is important because uh, the stuff that you're talking about there is ubiquitous throughout. I mean, uh, I could say ninety percent or more of the people that uh, that we see in uh, healthcare professional setting uh, meetings for uh, substance abuse are all they're all the type of healthcare professional that uh, does attach quickly to people's feelings, right? That part where you're you just get out of school, and it's. I was, I was not aware of that as a problem. <laughs> uh, and many people probably are not aware of that when they get out of school. And the ability to kind of, like you said, cut that cord at the end of each interaction is a skill that I found requires time and actual <laughs> cultivation. Um, yeah. Some people are naturally better at it than others, for sure. Uh, and some people have more trouble with it. Um, just, I think based on, you know, everybody's, it's kind of a sliding scale for how people uh, are kind of dialed into other people's pain, I guess. So maybe yeah. some people experience it more acutely. And if that's the case, then it makes those interactions harder to kind of finish off and, and move on to the next person. So, yeah, yeah and that's, sure. that's definitely important. To-
1: and, you know, when I was, um, you you know, probably at the height of my addiction when I was, I was highly traumatized and I didn't realize until the second time I went to rehab, I was highly traumatized from my divorce and hadn't dealt with it at all. And like, I remember days going to work, just like being in the car on the way to work, just sobbing and, and being so lost and so confused in terms of what I was dealing with. And then you walk through those doors and you're, you're the doctor, like you, you kind of run the show and you have to make decisions for people. And it's the same with nursing or pharmacy. You have to make all these like decisions. Mine wasn't life or death, luckily, but you know, these big decisions, um, for people's health when you're, when I'm like internally struggling so hard and trying to hide that and put on a happy face and, Be pleasant and kind and, oh man, that's a lot. And it still is a lot, you know, to separate work from like your real life and the shit you're going through.
2: And then I think about what you said a couple of moments ago about, about the, the emotional state of, of people that you were interacting with and how most people don't want to be at the dentist or many don't, at least many people are in pain or having a bad day. And, and I wonder what that, and then you've got you on the other side of the chair, who's traumatized and stressed out. What was that like? I mean, did, would you then go home and did, did that contribute to oh, days where you where you drank more and.
1: Thousand percent, like for sure it did. And it was daily. Like it became, it became like alcohol was like my best friend. It was like my security blanket, my, um, the thing that took it all away. I've never, I don't have much experience with opiates at all. Um, but you guys talked about that. It took it, it it took it away. Um, it took all that feeling and pain. And I mean, I brought it back a thousandfold later on when I got sober and I want to get into that and just, um, you know, down the road, we can talk about that. Just how a lot of people think that once you get sober, everything's like, you know, rainbows and sunshine. And it sure as shit is not, um, at the beginning. Um, but yeah, for sure. It was, it was, um, you know, and I still struggle, like, I don't, I wouldn't say struggle, but I still have moments after work where it's like, and I joke about it sometimes at work. I'm like, God, I need a glass of wine after that one. Like, and it's not, a coping mechanism I even think about using anymore. Like, it's just kind of a a joke that I'll, you know, or, you know, I'll say to my assistants, like, you need to go home and have a beer. Um, You know, I know I can't do that is to cope, but it's definitely still something that I think about um, after hard cases or emotionally charged situations that I'm in. And I think that that's just like you guys talked about in your last podcast, that little kind of entity that's going to sit there and he just sits there now. He doesn't like, he can bark all he wants, but it, you know, and I'm not going to answer to it, but yeah, he's for sure there on those days, um, hanging out. So.
2: Yeah. And the and stimuli doesn't change with it.
1: Yeah. yeah, it doesn't. Yep.
2: Yeah. So can you think of any other ways where it was starting to affect how you managed your responsibilities Um, you've mentioned kind of that feeling of a hangover or the feeling of fatigue. Were there any other aspects of your practice that you think were starting to, to, to struggle or getting more difficult for you to, to keep together as, as your addiction went on?
1: Yeah. Um, you know, there's like, I want to say held it together pretty good. Uh, but I have moments where, um, I remember going to work one day and, I was just sobbing and sobbing and it was right at the end before everything kind of hit the fan. And my boss looked at me and he's like, what's wrong? And I said, I don't know. I just don't know. I'm so sad. And um, we talked about this in the last Caduceus group that I was Mm -hmm. in. Like, I, I don't really have feelings of depression, but I could definitely tell like, those are moments that I think that that was what, depression feels like where you, it's just unex, in, in like unexplained sadness and I couldn't make it go away. And, and in those moments, it's all I could think about was finishing up as fast as I could so I can get out of there and have a drink and all my sadness would be gone. And that compounds on itself. Um, like physical stuff, I guess, like just, I mentioned like vomiting every morning before work just became normal. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I tried to hide that with like gum and, you know, tons of mouthwash and I worked in a dental practice. So there was tons of that available. And, um, you know, but I, I did have one instance where I had a, uh, a family That just wasn't my patient. They, they, I found out that they had like moved to a different dental office and it was months, months later. Um, I saw her in actually an AA meeting and she said, yeah, I moved my kids from the practice and it's no hard feelings, but I could smell alcohol on you. And I just didn't want that. I didn't, I didn't want you working on my kids. And that was, probably the only time that anybody has ever said anything to me or noticed. Um, Most people were very shocked when kind of everything happened. Um, When shit hit the fan, Uh, most people were extremely surprised. Um, It was one of those things that I just kind of suffered in silence by myself.
0: It's uh, it's kind of remarkable that, I mean, the people that you are working with, the other dentists, the people on staff, they must've realized that you were going through a divorce, correct?
1: Yeah. Oh um, yeah. They knew I was going through a divorce. And like, I know I was always the one, like I was the drunkest one at every function. So people must've talked. I mean, nobody said anything to my face about it, um, but they must've maybe said something behind my back. Um nobody approached me and said, Hey, we think like, do you have an issue or do you have a problem? Or there's none of that. So.
0: Yeah. It's just, it's interesting to me that I know that, uh, like that, that sounds to me that like you were in a situation where you were very lonely. If you didn't have anybody in that whole town, who ever came up at, at any point and, and kind of at least asked you, you know, how are you doing? Are you keeping it together? You just went through some that, that, uh, a lot of people find extremely stressful and difficult to manage. And I mean, were people coming up at least once in a while and and trying to touch base.
1: Yeah. And like, you know, my, my assistant was wonderful. She kind of took me under her wing a little bit. Um, And, you know, I, I made a couple of friends um, that kind of tried to make me feel better, I guess, and, and support me with what I was going through. But I mean, these were new people that I didn't really know. They were lovely, but, um, it was, yeah, it, it was, I just tried to be, I just tried to be that girl that I, you know, I just tried to be that girl that was like, yeah, whatever it happens, no big deal. It's all good. And play that card as long as I could. Um, and I think that's why people, when everything happened, why they were so surprised. Because I think they thought I was pretty fine. Like I was I was handling it fine. Hmm.
2: So th- this is where we're kind of all three of us are, are uh, similar. And I think if we talk to a lot of other healthcare professionals that were in the same boat as us, where we're able to sustain it for a period of time. And that kind of contributes to us telling ourselves that it's working or that we can we can manage. Right. So were you, um, you, you were telling yourself, Carmel, that, that you could kind of keep going and like, I've used the, yeah, the analogy like, of all the balls being in the air.
1: Yeah. I really didn't. I really didn't see that. I never said, like I was listening to you guys at your last podcast and Nathan, you know, was asking himself some pretty deep questions of like, like, okay, this is, I either take this path or this path. I didn't, I didn't ask myself anything. And I think I'm probably a much shallower person than you and you guys are in terms of the deep thinking. Um, That's where my husband is very similar to you too. Um, and he has a lot of similarities. He's an opiate, Um, You know he's in recovery from opiates as well. So, Um, but I didn't ask myself. I didn't really think anything was. I knew like I drank a lot, and I but I didn't. I like I liked it, so I didn't think it was that big of a deal. Um, You know I had people tell me like my parents would every now and then they tell me like you've they 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 noticed a shift in me in terms of my personality. They thought I became quite harsh like sharp around the edges um, and less kind and less sweet than I, I would never call myself sweet in any circumstance, but um, they thought I was a sweet girl. And they kind of said like in hindsight, like they, they recognized that they had kind of lost that. They saw it like that spark in me kind of leave. Um, but nobody really told me this.
0: Uh, hurt people, hurt that kind of. Yeah, you know when you're lashing out because you're and just like I don't give a
1: shit attitude to ev- like I was like I don't yeah. care what people think of me I don't care I don't care Well I did care Yeah I cared a lot Um but you know kind of put on this hard hardened exterior Um Yeah I mean this is all in hindsight like during during the act of addiction I I just thought I was a I just kind of thought I was a rock star like handling, like I'm a dentist, I got this good job. I'm like able to party all the time. I can do all these fun things. Like I can travel, I can spend money, like water. Like it was just crazy.
2: And I don't think it's that, that's all that different from, from what Nathan and I have talked about that it's this, you're telling yourself the story that, that this is kind of working, right? Yeah. And, um, so for you, I'm please, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here it would seem that that would have been made it all the more alarming when, when the rug was sort of pulled out from under you, so to speak. Can you tell us about that? Like alarming how did, for me? Alarming for you. Like when, oh, when, yeah. so what did that look like when, um, did, how did your employer find this out? How did this all come to a a, a halt?
1: So, yeah, it was kind of a little bit serendipitous because it was five years ago, two days and two days ago, um, that I, um took a box of uh triaslam and decided and I sat at home and I looked at all these pills and I said, I'm gonna end this. I had written it leading up to that in the last in the few months before, I'd written a few like suicide notes um in my dark drunken stupors. Um and, and then threw them away and whatever. Um, but this one, I, I left a suicide, I wrote a suicide note out to my family and I looked at these pills and it was just, I just took them and I said, Kate, let's see what happens. Um, and then I instantly panicked, like horrifically, instantly panicked and drove over to my best friend's house who didn't live very far away. Um, and it was like three in the morning. And I said, I just took all these pills and she said, well, you got to get them out of you. Like, and she was trying to, you know, get me to throw up and nothing was coming up. So she said, we got to go to the hospital immediately. Um, rush me to the hospital. I don't remember being there at all. I don't remember anything. It's just black. Um, I yes, I mean, that's what Traslam does. Um, I know, and she's told me bits and pieces about the story, but I guess, you know, they obviously pumped my stomach um, and I was, you know, came out of it okay. Um, so the next morning I kind of, I guess it was the afternoon, I think I woke up and all disoriented. I didn't really remember what had happened. Um, it gave me back the like, box of pills that like there's a couple left still and they gave them back to me which I thought was bizarre wow. like, why are you giving these to me but they were in a bag the hospital just handed them back said here's your pills back anyways um and I I remember like I I got a ride to my best friend's house picked up my car drove home smashed into a park like smash into a pole because I was still out of it I'm sure um, parked my car and kind of, that was it. And just carried on. And this was right before Christmas. And I think we were closed over Christmas. Um, I get to work a few more days after that. And I just went to work. Like it was like, nothing had really happened. And I get a phone call a couple of days after that must've been really shortly after that. Um, and my doctor called me into her office and said, you know, I got this report from the ER and I have to report you to the college. And I was like, what? She said, I have to report you to the college for, you know, um, you know, you're kind of, um, not safe to work with the public right now. And, uh, so the college is going to take it from there. And I was like, you have to do that. Like, I'm fine. It's just like, you know, it was just a little minor setback or slip up or whatever, just can you just not worry about it? And she said, no, I have to, like, I'm very, very worried about it. And um, rightfully so I begged her not to, I didn't know what was going to happen. And then a couple of days um, later was Christmas. I told my parents on the 24th, December 24th, that I had a problem with alcohol. Um, And then it was shortly after that, that the college called me and said, you have to stop working immediately. Um, You can voluntarily withdraw your license if you don't and you continue to work, we're going to take disciplinary action against you because you are unsafe to work with the public. Um, so I voluntarily withdrew my license that day and had to go into my work and tell my boss that I had a problem and I had to not work anymore. So I mean, I felt so awful for him having to reschedule, you know, weeks and months of appointments that my patient, you know, it just I didn't care at that point. That was not my concern. I just, I was, it was all a big blur. Um, It happened so fast. Um, And then the college was saying, you got to go to rehab. We're going to line you up with this company to get this IME done with this doctor. And I'm, I didn't know anything, what was going on. I just kind of looking back on it, it, it was, very blurry to look back on it. Um, and I kind of just went through the steps that they told me to be here at this time, go to this meeting, have this appointment. And um, three months, two and a half months later, I was shipped off to rehab. Um, but no, I like, I didn't know beforehand, like had I known before, I would love to say, had I known beforehand, I would have never tried to commit suicide um, just to avoid going through all of the, nonsense of rehab, but then who knows where I would have ended up. Right. So I feel like it was um, it was the right thing that everything kind of fell into place that way. It just, I don't think people know when they graduate that these are the ramifications that can happen from like, like had I known that there was a support system or that I was struggling or having these thoughts that I could call you know, a peer support line or something um, for dentists, like an anonymous support line, which they have now. Luckily, um, in the last couple of years, uh, they started that. But I mean, I didn't know any of that stuff. It was just all new to me. Yeah,
0: it, it it's interesting, Carmel, when you when you disc, when you tell us about the those events that led to you uh, taking those pills and it reminds me a lot of kind of a similar story that I've heard from other people and myself included, where <clears throat> I think there's a part of us that realizes that we're out of control. And maybe even if we understand it on a, on a conscious level, there's, there's a deeper understanding of the seriousness of it. That's, that's kind of happening uh, on another wavelength, I guess you could say. And that. The part that understands that, I think, is the one that is responsible for those type of actions where, you know, I, it it's it would be interesting to know what your mind state was as far as were you really interested in killing yourself uh, or was that, were you throwing out, the you know, were you putting up a flare type of thing?
1: I, I really do think, like, I've had a lot of time to think about that and I really, like, in my soul feel like it was a huge, um, cry for help. Yes. Yes. And, um, I, I, yeah, I had a lot of substances in my body that night too. So it was like, I don't really remember my, I don't remember. I, I remember looking at the pill, but I don't remember like, I just, I, I don't remember feeling so Hopeless that this this was the only way out. I just I, and that right there tells me that's a cry for help. You know the fact that I immediately drove over to my friend's house and asked for help. Yeah. Um,
0: But isn't it interesting that that the mind does that?
1: Yeah. You know even in a state
0: where you you know you're probably you're low on sleep, maybe you're you probably your nutrition is you know you're probably uh, hypoglycemic. All those things combined with poly substances that are floating around in your system and coupled with the pain that all this stuff that you've went through. And yet there's still this tiny thread of rationality that's able to kind of throw up this, this like cry for help. It's, it's, yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know what that, that energy or that force is, but it's. Uh,
1: I feel very lucky because there are people that don't get that lucky. And don't have that thread, and that's that's hard to understand.
0: Absolutely, you know?
1: um, I feel very lucky for all of the events that kind of happened. Yeah. Now I can. Now I can say that.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's uh, it's sad that that that's actually what it took to you know get enough of a response from. Yeah. From whoever you needed to get a response from to, to make things change. But yeah. It, I mean, if it's effective, it's effective.
1: In terms of like the employment stuff, you know, my boss was very supportive at, at the beginning. He was he he was shocked. Um and just go get better and come back better. And that was kind of his response um at that time at that moment in time. Um he said we'll take care of it on our end and Um, you know, kind of sort out all the patients and stuff. And uh, so that's kind of where I left. That's where I left work.
2: And what was it like to tell your family?
1: Interesting. Um, I told my sister beforehand and so she kind of knew it was coming and And my best friend said, why don't you come over to my house and I'll make some tea and you'll have, and, and your parents can come over too. And we'll tell them together. Um, And so I told them, I just said, I think I have a problem with alcohol. And there was like that sheer look of, I'm sure we've all, all of our parents have had that like, like kind of split second look of like disappointment and sadness and, um, and, uh, just shock, I guess, Um, and instantly it was okay, well, how are we going to, what do we do now? Let's get you better. And, uh, and they gave me a big hug and my mom said, you know, we got this. And my dad said, um, you know, like, I totally get it. I understand where you're coming from. So, and it was just not even a big deal. I mean, obviously they probably were like very, very upset. But I think for them, they said it was a huge relief to have me finally tell them that something was wrong. And that it really opened up the communication with my family. And I like, they had no idea that I was struggling with my divorce. I didn't even tell them I was separated for six months. Like, oh, just wow. like, um, you know, kind of carried on with, I think, I don't want to, I don't want to like, get too much into my family dynamic, but um, there are a lot of things that I think families do that sweep things under the rug. And that was, that was our family just swept our problems under the rug. And so now I was kind of forcing some of the problems to come out of the rug and now we have to fix them, um, which has been really great for like the, the last five years have been nothing but wonderful in terms of opening up communication and, and being honest and truthful with one another. Yeah, it's really changed our family for the better.
0: Well, so. uh, kudos to your parents for handling it like that. Uh, I know what you're talking about when, you, uh, when you're when <laughs> you telling us what it's like to tell your parents. I mean, it's uh, nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to disappoint their parents. Nobody wants to stress their parents out. Um, and you never, you know, you suspect that your parents can handle news of that of that magnitude but uh probably that's not the case for a lot of people right some people probably you know they uh they face backlash right away or or not they don't get the support that uh i think all of us have been lucky enough to get from our parents um so i i just i think it takes courage for your parents to absorb that news and then immediately offer support so
1: It was more the stuff that came after that, um, that when my, when I could step back and realize how in shambles my life was, and I had to tell my parents a whole bunch of really bad news things all in a row that was worse. Like, I think that it was worse because they were like, okay, we, we understand alcoholism a little bit and we can handle this. Um, the rest of the stuff that came afterwards, they were just like, holy, holy shit. Um, that was I think more of a shock to them um, but they also handled it very graciously and have been nothing but supportive so
2: yeah the, the substance use is just sort of the the crust on top of the volcano yeah, right yeah, like yeah <laughs> yeah I think for a lot of us it's just it's all the the ugly stuff underneath that's so much harder to to deal with yeah. and of course that's the stuff that gets left after yeah. after we enter sobriety right yeah. So at, at that point, now your, your, your world is kind of opened way up and, and your secrets are revealed to you, to your family and your friends. What, what was the support you were looking to get? Um, what did you feel like you needed at, at that point on a, either on a practical level or on a, on a personal emotional level?
1: You know, it was funny. I had a really, I had a friend um, and she actually, <laughs> she's the girl that did my eyelashes <laughs> Uh, back in the day when it was like everyone had their eyelashes done and she, her story was very similar to mine. um, And in a lot of ways. And so I would, you know, go in and it's almost like a therapy session laying there with my eyes closed for an hour and a half and telling her all these crazy, crazy stories that I, all the things I was getting up to. And she was in recovery and she was like, Oh girl, that was me five years ago. Like you're just a little bit behind me. And um, so when I when all this happened, um, she like, I don't even like, again, it, so much of that stuff was such a blur. Cause it had everything happened within days. Um, but she snatched me up from my house and dragged me to an AA meeting. And I didn't want to go. I, I didn't want to be there. Um, I was filled with guilt and shame and all the things that they, you know, when you first walk into those rooms, um, I mean, there's, there's power in those rooms. I don't, uh, I don't, I don't, I won't get into um, all of the stuff, how I feel now, but um, at the very beginning, I, I really do believe that she was like a big lifeline, like a big, huge support and a lifeline for me. Um, those rooms were just, I mean, they just all were, everyone in there just wrapped their arms around me and supported me. I had a sponsor immediately. I had, um, you know, a couple people in recovery, they had a treatment center and they're like, if you want to come to a treatment center, like we'll hook you up right away. Um, I had to kind of figure out how that was going to go with college, which obviously I could not go to that treatment center, but um, anyways, it uh, like that, those early days, I was very grateful to have that support. Um, and yeah. I guess that's what I can say about that.
2: And then how soon after, after, you know, the moment of exposure,
1: did
2: you, did you go to, uh, an addiction specialist? Did you have your IME done?
1: I would have had my IME done in January. So this happened to the end of December, so January, mid January, I got sent for an IME. Um, and, uh, earlier mid-January and it was um she was lovely she was so nice and it was very long procedure <laughs> long visit hours and hours and hours of everything from I I didn't know what to expect it was like five or six hours of just from the day you were born to today um and very quickly on I was like kind of seeing where this was going um and I, I knew based on my answers that I had a bigger problem than I had ever said to myself out loud. Um, so, um, yeah, and then it was kind of not suggested, but, well, I guess suggested, I can use that word, suggested that I attend rehab. So
0: and what strongly would have,
1: recommended.
0: Yeah, what rehab. what would have happened if you didn't?
1: uh, I would have not been able to work as a dentist anymore.
0: Right. Yeah. So, so that's, that's kind of, the it deal. it was
1: not really an option to say no, if I want, if I didn't want to give up my career. Right. So, um, and at that point I wasn't given a choice. It was, I was told that it was Homewood. Um, I had to go to Homewood, my reasoning the reason I was given was because I it could be a conflict of interest to go to a place in BC because I could have patients that I know at that same treatment center in BC which didn't really make a lot of sense to me because the treatment centers were on like on the coast and on the island and I'm in interior like I'm like I don't Okay. I I didn't, I mean, what can you say? I was like, okay, I guess that makes sense. Sure. I wasn't given another option. So that was my choice.
2: I was just thinking about how, how powerful it is once we start to kind of take an inventory in, you know, I, I think I had the same experience in, in the IME with the addiction specialist. Once you start to kind of, it's a rare opportunity to inventory your entire life and, every substance you've ever touched and every aspect of your of every type of history that you have it's pretty pretty heavy to look at it all right in front of you isn't
1: it and i think you know like i know you guys kind of touched on it in your last like people can use substances and recreationally and it's not a problem um i think it would be interesting like if people did like if someone who didn't go through what, what we went through, if they wrote down the same things that I wrote down, I think everyone would be sent to rehab. <laughs> oh. Like, I just feel like everyone, according to what they, if they're really truthful and honest would based on the, the, you know, guidelines would be sent to rehab.
0: Yes. The, if you went by the DSM five, and uh, cataloged people that you just, you could randomly walk around and just, Hey, come over here for a sec. Yeah. You're going to rehab. Come over here for yeah. that. You're going to rehab. There, there's yeah. not going to be very many people at all. We're not going to fall under, <laughs> into the category of being sent off there. Um, yeah. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's again, the, the kind of relationship to your, to the substances and and why you're using them, and what the motivations are, and whether or not they're contributing to uh, positive events in your life or negative events, and yeah, that's that's kind of more of the issue. Um, but it's it it's yeah, it's it's interesting. Just to- but
1: I mean, I like to not downplay my situation. I definitely, I definitely feel like I can look back and I can I can say that I needed to, I needed help. I needed support. I needed to go figure some shit out. Um, So I'm not taking that away from my, my own experience. Like I just, it was, it, it just kind of opened my eyes to, it started to kind of open my eyes to this whole world, the recovery machine. Um, And I'm grateful for it today uh, for sure. But yeah, it was the beginning of kind of what was to come.
0: Right. Yeah, you're. Um, you're. I think the the last remaining member that I have an obsidian um, from my original group, and uh, I think you're. You've got to be probably the. Not to say that it's. It's not like you were in rough shape to begin with. It's just I could tell that you were not having a good time. I mean, you're. You know you.
1: I was really frustrated.
0: Yes. I I think that's a, that's a fair way of saying it. And, And to watch you over the last, whatever it's been now more than three years, I guess, uh, kind of go through all this personal stuff and, and take charge of your health And it just it's it's been pretty amazing. So
1: nice, thank you. Yeah,
0: you're you're definitely one of the more inspiring um, cases of recovery, I think that uh, that we've we've had. So
1: yeah, that means a lot because you know I even at that time, like Corey, when you were when you asked me that question, like when I was doing those I that IME, I remember leaving there going, okay. I don't think I can control this. I think like this, the wheels are in motion for what's coming. So what can I control? I can't drink anymore. I can't use drugs anymore. Um, I'm just not going to eat anymore. I'm going to get as skinny as I can. It makes me feel good. I can control that. Um, And you know, like that started, so then I ended up going to rehab for also an eating disorder. On top of they slapped that on on top of it. So, um, you know that was that was another like red flag that I didn't even realize at the time. I was just like, I got okay, like like screw you guys. You guys are going to take all this away. I'm going to do this. And like it's it's like what toddlers do. (laughs) It's what kids do. Like,
0: well, it's surprisingly um, common. I mean, there must have been. Well, there's a reason. I think most most uh, treatment centers now have a a facility for eating disorders, like mm-hmm. right adjacent to the substance use stuff, because yeah. they go hand in hand. I mean, yeah, it's very, very often people will uh, will take that route because it is your that's what it is. Like you're you're searching for remnants of control.
1: Yeah.
2: So at that point, Carmel, were you was there still an internal resistance? Were you still sort of saying? I don't want to do this or I, I I'm not buying it. Or, or were you, was there a part of you that was um... kind of
1: just like at that point, I remember like between, before I had my IME, I guess like between the hospital and before I had my IME, there were a couple of days, like my mom stayed with me to kind of like babysit me. Um, and there were a couple of days where I'm like, screw it. I'm going, I'm just going to go sit at the bar and drink. I don't care. And so, you know, it was a couple of those 24 hour chips Cause I couldn't, I couldn't, like at that point I was, I was going to be the one in control. And then by the time I had my IME, um, you know, I'd kind of, and and, like the people in AA, my friends in AA um, were a huge, I guess, support um, to kind of show me that, you know what, just, just like you are powerless over this right now. So just, So just do what people say and just listen to what other people say and just kind of follow the rules, Um, which I think was a big help at the beginning. Um, You know, I didn't know what to do and other people knew what to do and were going to kind of take the reins from me a little bit. And that was actually kind of comforting to be like, huh, you know what, I can let other people make some decisions for me. I don't have to make these hard decisions. This is all happening kind of for me. So, which was kind of a peaceful feeling in a way. Yeah. Scary. yeah I,
0: I could see that. It's a, that's a wise decision at that point, for sure. Not one that I, <laughs> I was interested in making, but uh, uh, it's like, now, at, at this point, looking back and looking uh, having a, the opportunity to look at other people's situations. And I really do think there's something to the, the first 90 days that uh, just if no matter you know, what route you want to take after that, if you can just manage 90 days to get your head out of that cloud. Mm-hmm. and then once you're out of the cloud you can make a decision you know make whatever decision you want at that point but at least give yourself that much of a toehold because yeah. without it your your ability to make a wise decision is let's say impaired <laughs> to put it yeah. mildly
1: the hard thing was was after the IME and waiting to get into rehab um, was what i would call like white knuckling it um I luckily had amazing parents that invited me down. They were down in Arizona. My mom went back down to Arizona with my dad and they, I was home for a couple of weeks and I wasn't doing very good. I could see like I was trying to do, you know, all the right things and not drink. And I just was going into a pretty dark place. And I called my mom crying one day and I said, I I, I don't, I, I don't know what to do and she said get on a plane fly down here and just come hang out till you go to rehab and that was the best thing i did that i that i could do for myself at that time and it was lovely like you know my parents like um just kind of took me under their wing and really took care of me until i could get to rehab and there there were many phone calls to that rehab place i'm sure that they have my dad on you know those You know when you call someone and it says like, um, or you call a company and it says um, this is going to be recorded. I'm sure there's many recordings of my dad screaming Mm -hmm. at them because it took forever. Um, No fault of their own. It just they, I guess we want things done on our timeline. And like, let's. I I was just at that point. I was like, I want to get this done so I can get back to work immediately. I just want to get through this. I got to get through five weeks and then get back to work. Mm that was what I thought, <laughs> fantasy. But that is what I thought was going to happen. Um, yeah. It did not happen that way.
0: <laughs> so, what about the uh, the rest of your time at uh, at the treatment facility? Can you tell us uh, kind of a little bit about how that went, and uh, you know what you what you liked about it, what you didn't like, what worked for you, what didn't?
1: I was really scared. I had never seen. Really sick people before, like that. Um, I was totally out of my element. I kind of, um, in my, I kind of joke about it, but I was like, I felt like I was like, I'm just the girl that likes to party a little bit too much, and now I'm here. And there's people that are like really, really sick, and um, like that's not me. Um, Homewood was are we allowed to say the name of the place? Yep. Okay. Homewood was <laughs> too late now, but Homewood was uh, uh, it's 12 uh, step based and it was, I thought pretty good at the beginning. Um, I really, really tried. I, I tried hard. Um, I met someone when I was there and um, connected to this amazing, amazing human being right off the bat. And, um, um, we had, yeah, a really strong connection at the beginning and I kind of knew that was going to end up being a problem, but the, in terms of the program, I really poured my heart and soul into it. I did all the things that I was supposed to do. I was a, a star student, I guess. Um, you know, I didn't, stray too far off the beaten path. Um, I did break a couple of rules, <laughs> very firm rules that you're not supposed to break. And that ultimately got me thrown out of that place three days before I was supposed to finish my program. Um, so I didn't finish my program there. Um, looking back on it, I have, a, I have, I went to a different facility after, and I have something to compare. And I can now say that that place was not the greatest place in my opinion, humble opinion.
0: You're being so kind to Homewood, <laughs>
1: but um, it was a, a large facility. Um, you were kind of just a number and pumped through the system. That's how I felt. Um, yeah.
0: What about their, I, I never have asked you this, but what about their uh, eating disorder? uh facility there like was that of any benefit
1: I was not in so I wasn't in like I wasn't in with the eating disorder group um but I was monitored I had to weigh myself every day and I wasn't allowed to see the scale which drove me crazy um but that's a big thing to get over your kind of obsession with numbers um and but I was monitored. Like I had to, someone was watching me. They made sure I eat, ate all my meals. Um, and yeah. So it was kind of like, they are just making sure I was eating and, uh, and finishing my meals and stuff, but it wasn't like, I didn't really, there might've been a couple courses on it, but I, I wasn't like in the, I wasn't, I wasn't in the program necessarily. I just kind of just, yeah, I don't know. It was kind of useless to be honest. It didn't really do much.
0: Yeah. So they were, they were basically, it made
1: me mad mad every day.
0: (laughs) I was going to say, it's like, they find all sorts of interesting kind of creative ways to torture you while you're in there. And that's, yeah, that's a new one, right? If you've got an eating disorder, let's weigh this person and not show them the scale every single day while they're trying to deal with a uh, substance abuse issue. But uh, yeah. So did you
2: have to start from square one when you went to the next facility?
1: Yes. So, um, I ended up getting kicked out and I, I got kicked out because I was in a relationship with someone, um, which was very traumatizing to sit in a room full of the entire staff of Homewood, um, and say all of the things that had happened, um, to a room, like that, that was hard and scary. They kicked us out, um, They kicked him out and me out and my roommate out um my roommate had been using um and so she got kicked out um at the same time and I was on the street in Guelph um with nowhere to go I didn't have a flight I didn't have really a lot of money um I got a hotel room and um with the person I got kicked out with Um, we ended up getting a hotel room and basically I drank for five days and he did what he did for five days and we just um, ignored the world around us, I guess in Guelph, Ontario until finally our parents said, you need to stop this and come home. And uh, yeah, but it was, I was, it, it shocked me that I was drunk within one hour of being kicked out of Homewood, like, like beyond drunk. Like I drank as fast as humanly possible with is the second I got out of there, I drove, we drove straight to a bar and I pounded drinks and I was like, okay, so all this work, like I'm clearly not better. This, this did not, this did not set me on like a path of sobriety. Um, clearly I need more help. Um, you saw that then? I saw that then. Well, yeah. once I got home, like I yeah. guess once I got home, it I was like, "Holy shit!" Uh, like that took minutes. Yeah. Um, you know, so I got back, and um, um, then my monitoring company had to scramble to find funding again because they they were like, uh, you know, we. I was given government funding to go to Homewood and, and, um, they said, well, we're not even sure you can get funding again for something like this. That happens. My college called me. They were, everyone was so nice. I will say that everyone was very, very supportive and very nice. And, um, my college said, you know, well, unfortunately you didn't complete a program. You have to complete a program, but you know, we'll, we'll work with you. Whatever needs to be done. We'll help try to get you some funding to go back. Um, so I think I had another IME I had to do it all over again, start from square one, another IME. Um, and at that point they gave me a choice. They said, would you like to go back to Homewood? Or there's this other place called Bellwood. And I said, um, I'm hundred percent not going back to Homewood. They literally left me on the street. Um, not really a fan. Um, let's try something else. So it took about a year before I went back. Um, I took a lot of time off. I didn't know if I was even going to go back to dentistry. Um, I had a lot to think about. Took a long time to get funding. Um, I needed some time to kind of reassess my priorities and kind of get things under control. I got as soon as I got back. I got. Um, uh, set up with a really good, um, like therapist for substance abuse. And she was excellent. And I did, uh, go pretty consistently to AA. Um, and yeah. And so I, I went back to, I went to Bellwood with a year of sobriety under my belt, which was a huge difference in going with three months of sobriety. Um,
2: Yeah. You must've been a different person at that point, almost
1: totally different person. Yeah. Um, and a different experience at a treatment facility. I wish that everyone could be sober for a year and then go back because it made such a big difference. I wasn't craving anything. I wasn't white knuckling it. I wasn't, you know, I was pretty clear headed at that point. I had sorted out a lot of mess in my life. Um, so when I went, it was, I don't want to say it was like, a vacation for 6 weeks because it definitely was not a vacation but it was um more um beneficial than I'll, like than anything i've done for sure um it was cbt and dbt based um and they had an excellent healthcare provider program they uh, really, that's where I really, really dove into my divorce. I didn't even, I didn't even talk about my divorce in Homewood at all. That wasn't an issue. I didn't think it was an issue. And Bellwood really made me aware that, okay, this is where a lot of my trauma came from. And a lot of my substance use kind of started ramping up. So, um, I really got to, um, really dive deep in in bellwood and do the work and it was amazing
0: what about uh were there any kind of sports programs or anything like that that people like to do and anything like that that was fun to do while you were there
1: uh yeah um <laughs> i know that's kind of a tongue-in-cheek question um because <laughs> they talk about it a lot but um yeah it was it, we played a lot of volleyball there's volleyball like every every day when you had your like you you had downtime uh all of us would get together it's a really way smaller facility so you're a lot more connected to everyone and you kind of get to know everyone um and we would just have little volleyball tournaments every day it's great
0: that's awesome i didn't know i could
1: i didn't even know i could play volleyball and i came out of there (laughs) kind of a pro volleyball so
0: wow (laughs) six weeks that is awesome uh, quick question for you. Whatever happened to uh, the the uh, gentleman that you were hanging out with uh, from I Homewood? I
1: married him.
0: You ma- <laughs> well, what?
1: We were, told, <laughs> we were told when we <clears throat> got kicked out of Homewood, um, they sat us in a room together and they said, if you guys leave here together, you will die. <clears throat> and which is kind of extreme.
0: But a they little said extreme, most
1: yeah. addicts <clears throat> um, that end up together, one will die or both will die
0: absolutely so, false by the way
1: um well lots of things were false at Homewood. Um, <laughs> but they strongly urged us to leave in separate cabs um which it's hard to it's easier said than done when y- you are with someone and you get kicked out together like you probably are going to go hang out together for a while Um, anyways, we, he's from Nova Scotia. We went our separate ways after, after we left and, uh, and, um, he ended up coming out about a month later and we were very good supports for one another. Um, I would not recommend anybody, um, that is, I I don't recommend it for anybody. It's, it's definitely challenging. However, I will say this um in rehab you kind of there's no secrets in rehab for the most part everyone knows everyone's deepest darkest part of themselves within days um and I find a lot of beauty in that where you can find out you know people's souls kind of like right from day one because you're all struggling and suffering and getting to the bottom of your struggling and suffering. And there's kind of, nobody holds, well, some people hold back, I guess, but not a lot of people hold back. So you get to know people on a really intimate level pretty quickly. So we knew a lot of our kind of, I would say the hard, our honeymoon phase of our relationship came after we actually dealt with all of our struggles early, early on, And then everything since then has been kind of easier to deal with just because we knew all of our dark, deepest, darkest stuff about each other at the beginning. Um, I mean, it hasn't always been easy, as no marriage is, but um, it's been wonderful. He's been a really excellent, excellent support for me. He's very highly intelligent, Um, he's military. Um, commander, he was a soldier, uh, an officer in the military, and uh, got diagnosed with uh, severe PTSD, um, and ended up with an opiate addiction, um, and is he's also about five years in recovery as well. So,
0: yeah, I, yeah it's I, been I, a journey. <laughs> I uh, find your guys's uh, your story and your relationship to be really uh, interesting because of the dynamic there and. I uh, like the way you put that with kind of finding beauty in starting out kind of looking at the ugliest parts of each other. <laughs> and yes. uh, I think there is something to be said there. If you're, if you're able to forge your initial bond under those circumstances, then what really has life got left to throw at you? You know, I mean, you know, I, I, it's just, so many people I think um, they get married when they're still in the honeymoon phase
1: mm-hmm. and
0: then they they've faced no adversity whatsoever so the smallest things kind of take them out and uh, yeah
1: it's
0: it's interesting seeing somebody who's done it a different way
1: yeah. It's, and, yeah I mean it's it's got its own challenges obviously but I think any relationship has its own challenges um, I would say I want to kind of, I know, I don't know about time, but I wanted to just talk about um, like, for me, it's very important for people to understand that when I got sober, um, life just didn't get back. I just didn't get this man. And we fell in like, like, yes, that all happened. But um, when I got sober and I came back from Homewood, I had to sit down with my dad and say, "Hey, by the way, this guy that I met in rehab that I got kicked out of with is moving to BC in three days, and also um, I haven't paid my taxes in two years or three years, um, and CRA is coming after me, and I think I'm going bankrupt, and I don't know where I'm gonna like, like, like when you get sober, it it's everything just doesn't get better. It often you get sober and you open up your eyes and your drawers to all of your bills that you haven't paid, and you're like everything can end up in way more shambles than you thought when you were in active addiction. I guess yeah. is what I'm trying to say. Absolutely. I don't want to make that clear that it's not like it's not like you get sober and it's just like everything's perfect. Um, yeah. far from it. It's you have, I, I was able, it was like all the all the kind of fog was lifted and I was left with an absolute nightmare to deal with. Um, and yeah, it was not fun. I was able to do it because I was sober. Um, but it was not fun
0: for the first two
1: years, I would say at least.
0: I think that's a, a really poignant piece of information for people to, uh, to kind of latch on to because so often i see especially i mean treatment facilities are bad with this too and they they'll tell you oh you know all you got to do is you know string together a few days of sobriety and you're going to see that your whole life will change and um yeah uh you know clearing your head is part of it there's no question about it but really that's in a lot of ways it's kind of where the work starts right And now you got to go back and like you said, you got to pick up all these pieces, reorganize all the stuff that was neglected and hope that you can pick up enough pieces to reassemble a life and continue on. Yeah. So, Yeah. It's a, it's a great point.
2: And And, and like any kind of therapy is not that concrete. It's not that black and white and, and managing at least for myself, managing the nuances of my personality and of my brain um, and to do it without any sort of chemical crutch is like, that's the hard, that's the hard work, the ongoing hard work on bad yeah. days and, and stuff that oh, yeah. I, I agree with you. I don't, I don't know that, that it's um, spoken of enough. Like that's that the, the hard work is ongoing for sure.
1: Yeah. It kind of just like, it was like, I was standing, looking at this, like, I didn't even know where to start. Like, how do you, how do you, how do you, where do you go from here when you're like, great, I'm sober. That's cool. Thank you for the congratulations. Thank you for the cake. But like, um, I don't like, I, I have to declare bankruptcy. Like I have no job anymore. Like, you know, there's all these things that kind of happen that I was just, and and that's not everyone's situation, but there's a lot of things where you just have to stand and look back and be like, holy shit, what a mess. Um, This is messy. Can I handle this? Yes, I can handle this. Um, And it's going to be even harder now because I don't have, when I get frustrated and I get overwhelmed, I don't have anything that's going to make it feel better. Um, So I have to sit in the raw and the sharp edges and the pain and the scariness of it all. And those emotions come at you real hard when you get sober.
2: Yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's, you, you put that really well. Like that's, that's, those are the, those are the hardest moments, but that's also, I think where resiliency gets built up from is like managing those situations and sitting in it literally facing, facing those things. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you about how um, one of the questions we wanted to ask was how long did it take you to start sort of feeling, feeling like yourself, feeling better. And you can take that however you, however you want to take it, Carmel, about what feeling better really meant. And then I also wanted to ask you how, what were things that you, you and your partner used together to, to kind of formulate a healthy lifestyle for yourselves and to, as checks and balances.
1: Yeah. I mean. Like, I didn't have, like, physic- like physical s- cravings um, took a long time to go away. Um, like, a year, maybe longer. Every now and then, I'll still get them. Like, just odd ones will pop up here and there. Um, holidays are sometimes a little bit harder. Um, um, I didn't have, like, I feel bad for um, people that use opiates because that, that like, the physical withdrawals are so bad. And then the post acute withdrawals are very real. I watched my husband go through that for like two years, I think after 18 months or something it took uh, to kind of get over those. Um, I didn't really have that. So I kind of felt, I felt my life was very off balance for a long time. Um, But I felt kind of back to normal, probably really after it's hard to say because my life was, I wasn't working for 17 months. I was off work. I had gotten fired. I kind of didn't mention this. I gotten fired while I was in rehab. Um, just a quick shout out for any employers there. You can't do that. Um, but, uh, anyways, I, I, so I was kind of in this weird limbo state of bliss, I guess that I was just not working. I was sober. I was kind of just living like day to day having an okay time like it was kind of great actually um i would say probably i would say feeling like me again oh god 2 years like a long time 3 2 or 3 years 2 years probably starting to like deal with my anxiety my um, frustration towards the system, the um, feeling kind of like me again. Um, and, and it's hard to know because nothing was really like, it wasn't just like a day I woke up and I felt great. It was like, okay, I, I've learned to set, I've, I've, I've learned how to set boundaries. That took a long, long time to learn how to set boundaries proper boundaries for my mental health i learned how to control my finances i learned how to dig myself out of a hole from financial disaster i've learned how to um you know communicate better with my partner like there's all these things that kind of happened over time that now i can say like yeah i totally feel fine and normal now but i don't know like it's not like a set time really but i would say uh, like a while like at least a year.
0: Well, you're probably, uh, you know, just from what you're saying there, it sounds like you probably went through a lot of growth after yeah. this all occurred yes. because maybe you weren't looking at these issues as closely. And then this allowed you to have some time to kind of deal with these issues and, and, you know,
1: yeah,
0: find strategies that work for you.
1: Yeah. And that was, um, you know, a lot of, And like the way I did that was, um, well, rehab, like the second time I went was really beneficial, um, like greatly beneficial to help with my negative self-talk. Um, my, um, his name was Edward at Bellwood and he was wonderful. And he, um, kind of like over the six weeks I was there, um, teased it out of me that I, like, I, I walked away feeling like I'm not a bad dentist. I'm a, I'm a good dentist. I'm a, um, I'm also not just a dentist. Like I'm not like my, my identity isn't just my profession. My identity is Carmel. I'm a, I'm a wife. I'm a daughter. I'm all these things. And dentistry is my career. Um, And that for me was huge to separate those, um, and not be so attached to this career as who I was. Um, and so that helped, um, the negative self-talk, like learn, like recognizing that, you know, I'm, I have bad days as a dentist. Like, you know, there's times where I'm like, oh man, I could have done that feeling a little better. Um, it could have been nicer, could have been more perfect, but I'm like, you know what, the, Kid was six years old and squirming around, and I did what I could. And it's not my fault. And I can always fix it in a year from now when he's a little bit. You know, like there's things that now I can talk my my way through that make me, um, not beat myself up so much when when things aren't perfect. Um, and I have a really excellent therapist right now. Um, and I know that's not available to everyone. I'm grateful to veterans affairs, being a wife of a veteran that I can have that opportunity to have a really good therapist. Um, if you can do it, I would advise people to, um, get therapy. It can help. It's not for everyone, but it can. Um, and yeah. So
0: it sounds like you're the cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, is that what you're talking about as far as helping you with negative thoughts? Yeah. 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 I, I found the, even the, like just the basic, uh, CBD, uh, CBD tough stuff, sorry. Uh, is very useful to go over like every three months I'll open it up and, and just take a look and see, yeah, what's going on here. Uh, yeah. have I been catastrophizing, you know, what kind of, yeah. you know, am I fortune telling what kind of uh, negative thought patterns? And they, because they just kind of, they sort of accumulate if you're not watching them right at least in in my case so
1: i mean i'm what about like four four and a half years sober or something something like that anyways you know it's easy to even start at this point like romanticizing alcohol again being like oh you know um it's you know maybe down the road i can maybe maybe i can maybe I can have a couple drinks. Like maybe it's not so bad. And it's, it's really important to make sure to kind of go back to all that CBT stuff and, and look at it again and, and be like, no, I got to check myself before I wreck myself. Cause I just, yeah, I just know that path.
0: Yeah. You got to know your limits. Um, how much longer you're getting closer to uh, being finished with monitoring. How do you feel about that? <laughs>
1: Well, I feel like it's not that close. It's still like a year <laughs> and a half away. Um,
0: <laughs> Do we not start but, counting until the last year? Probably not. Eh?
1: Yeah. Sorry, um, I, I,
0: I thought it was shorter than that. I'm-
1: you know, at the beginning, monitoring really, well, as you know, Nathan, maybe not so much you, Corey, because you weren't there quite at the beginning, but I was known as the girl who just would bitch about monitoring for <laughs> my whole time. Like my 15 minutes or 10 minutes or whatever I got to talk, it was just yelling about monitoring um tests and now you know what those p tests kept me clean and sober um i made friends with the girl that um like took my pee all the time um she's lovely um the company i'm with is great and i it's just part of my day. Like it, it really affects my day in no way anymore. It's like sending a text to my mom in the morning saying, Hey, how's it going? It's basically that, Hey, do I have a P test today? Hey, nope, not today. Okay, cool. See you tomorrow. Like it's so not even a big deal. And if it is, and if I do have a P test, I just go do it. Like yeah. the money part of it dr- will drive me crazy forever, but that's just, you know what? I also have to really stop and think about how much money was he spending on booze? Like, yeah, really way more, mm-hmm. way more money. So to do this, if this is my, like, I don't want to say punishment, but if this is what the college enforces for five years, it's not the end of the world.
0: Yeah. I agree. I- I think the five years is uh, I, I still haven't seen any evidence to suggest that that's better than a three-year term. Um, however, the monitoring is what made me feel safe. I've talked about it before. And I think for a lot of people, it's it's the thing that allows you to at least try again. And, yeah. you know, everybody can make up their mind after going back in and, you know, if they if they feel safe after the monitoring comes down, some people are fine with it. Other people, you know, like myself, I'm probably going to be anxious about it for the rest of my, you know, whenever I'm in a pharmacy, I'll probably feel like that. But um, it's different for everybody. But I think that that component of it is 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 definitely worth it. You know, if you're if you're looking at positives of monitoring the uh,
1: yeah, um, the thing that like I'm lucky because my monitoring company is so great. But you know, hearing others in groups. Um, I I feel frustrated for them. Sometimes I think the monitors um, themselves, like, forget that, like, we're all just human. And, you know, like, sometimes I forget to check in, you know, if it's a Saturday, sometimes I forget to check in and it's past 12. And I remember at the beginning, I would call Nathan crying and be like, it's like, it's 2.30 and I forgot to check in and they're going to, you know, they're going to count that as a fail or they're going to, you know, Use that against me, and my monitoring comp company was very cool about it, and they'd be like, "Oh yeah, no problem. Don't worry about it. Like it happens. You're human." Um, I, I do. It would be nice if monitoring companies were listening right now, just to remind them that you know we are all just human, and sometimes you know we do the best we can, but like to go easy on to go easy on people, especially in recovery. Like we're all just trying to dot all the I's and cross all the T's. And there's a lot of them um, Mm -hmm. to do. So, you know, just I I wish that they would have a little bit more grace for people.
0: Yeah. Yeah. They're not all the same. And unfortunately, I think some people kind of get lost in their day to day and they forget that people are human and yeah, it's, Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, we do the best we can. Uh, Did we have any more questions, Corey, or is that that a good once over?
2: I think we're almost there. I I wanted to just circle back to the question, Carmel, about, because I think people will be really, would be interested to know on how, on a day-to-day or a week-to-week basis, how you and your partner, is it something you guys talk about openly? Um, And what does the sort of each other's um, health and wellness look like now? In, yeah. in your own. Cause you've got two, two parallel journeys, two very intersected journeys and it's yeah. kind of a unique, a, a unique thing.
1: Yeah. So for sure I'll touch on, and this is, you didn't ask me this, but I'll touch on it anyways. Um, sure. first, um, just in terms of like now five years later, working at this nonprofit, um, I have very clear boundaries, um, with what I can handle, what I know my mental health can handle, um, you know, it's very easy for especially how busy we are. It's very easy for me in my head to be like, "Well, maybe I can pick up an extra like an extra day here and there. I can handle that. I can do it. And I just you know what? I just I've done it. Um, and usually yeah, I my mental health takes a hit for it. So I'm very firm on not doing that. And and just that's just not an option for me. Um, I don't tolerate people. um we see the the practice that I work in. um, Sometimes people can yell at us and get mad and stomp their feet and get really frustrated. And I don't tolerate that. There's a lot of dentists out there that would probably, you know, try really hard to make it work. And I just, I just, I'm too busy. And I, it's not that I'm, it's not that I'm not empathetic. It's just, I'm not tolerating that on my mental health. I'm not taking that home with me. I don't deserve that. And that's just that's a hard line for me as well um so um so that's work and then with my husband and i um our journeys we we kept our recoveries very separate um and we talked openly about making sure that our recoveries were very separate so um he was on his journey um of recovery and d- did things the way he needed to do things to heal. And, and I respected every part of that. Um, and I went my own way with my journey and he respects everything that I do, um, in terms of health and wellness, um, he's very fit and very active. I try to be fit and active. I'm like zero. Um, Act, well, it's not that I'm not active. I'm not athletic. So I have to really try hard um, to keep up with him. But um, we. Oh, you're
0: a professional uh, volleyball player.
1: Uh, well, yeah, it's been a couple years um, years. But, um, you know, we make sure to like, we found a lot of solace in nature, getting out in nature, um, found a lot of healing in uh, nature. Um, we read a lot of um, books that interest us in terms of recovery. So, I mean, they don't all have to be, they're not AA books. They're not, but just self-help books, I guess, that are, um, whatever we're kind of into at that time. Um, we take our diet pretty seriously now. Um, I know that I have a very, um, that eating disorder entity is always sitting there, um, always talking to me every day. And so I take my diet relatively seriously. It's harder on Christmas. Um, but, um, we try to kind of really make sure that our diet's pretty, pretty good. And, um, um, I, we, we've didn't realize how important sleep was. And I know it's kind of getting into like nitpicky things, but we, um, take our sleep very seriously. My husband, probably more than I do. Um, I feel like I can always like go on four or five hours of sleep and be fine. Um, I know I can't, but I, I just run on higher adrenaline than he does, I think. Um, and so oftentimes we'll just even sleep in separate bedrooms, um, just so that we can get good quality sleep so we can be good partners to each other. And we're fine with that. Um, Yeah. So I think just, it's pretty basic stuff, but stuff, nothing that I was doing when I was in active addiction, like none of it. It's pretty simple stuff. Um, But once you dive into it, you can go down some rabbit holes with all that stuff and, and go just like find out some neat, neat little mini journeys that you can go on with that, with all that stuff. So it's been fun.
2: That's cool. That's a really cool answer. I hear boundaries, respect, compassion, yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. So Nathan, do you, do you have any other questions for Doctor Hopkins?
0: I think we're pretty much done with Doctor Hopkins. Perhaps um, I just wanted to say that uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to do this as our first guest. It means a lot to us. To uh,
1: I feel very honored.
0: First <laughs> guest.
1: I'm yeah. pretty excited.
0: And yeah, it's uh, it's great to. Uh, it's not always easy finding people who are willing to put themselves out there like that. And I know it uh, takes a little bit of courage. And uh, so thank you. It's
1: important. Like, I'm really grateful that you guys started this channel. Um, You know, we all have stories and um, I just, I mean, we've all gone through it, especially in healthcare. And there's like a, Nathan, you talked about it, like a badge of honor in, in kind of um, like, like being heroes and working too much and taking on so much. And, and, and I kind of want to end that. Like that's there's, and, and there's, there's, a there's people that can do that. And that's great. Like power to those people. But I really do um, want to kind of like scream it from the rafters. like take care of your mental health because this is what can happen when you don't. So um,
0: yeah. Well said. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So I guess we can, uh, yeah. That's uh, that's about time. I think. Did, was there anything else you wanted to uh, throw in there, Carmel? I think no, nope, uh, just
1: really grateful. Keep going, and um, I'm, yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing more from you guys.
0: Awesome. All right, yeah, thank you for uh, having me. You're very welcome. Yeah, um, thank you, Carmel. Thanks for your courage,
2: and it's a uh, it's a gift that you're giving to the world by sharing sharing your story with us.
0: Exactly. Much appreciated. Yeah. Uh, Just a reminder, anyone who's watching on YouTube, feel free to comment and uh, let us know what we're doing well. Let us know we're not doing well. Uh, Yeah, well, hey, you know, if you don't (laughs) like my face, I'll get some plastic surgery. Just tell us what you want. We'll get that fixed up for you. Um, Any kind of feedback is good. And yeah, that's about it. So we'll call that an episode and uh, see everybody next time. Yeah, thanks, thanks guys. See you soon.
1: Thank you for having me. Take care.